past couple weeks, we have been talking about faith. And uh, last week, very specifically, we talked about how faith interacts with fear. And uh, we may get the sense, if we're reading from uh, kind of the end of Mark chapter 4 through what we read last week, we may get the sense that Jesus is basically able to do anything and everything. And of course, as good Christian people, we like to say, well, of course Jesus is able to do everything and anything. Um, but there's a question, is there anything that Jesus can't, power can't do? And that's a, that's a question that we're going to explore this week because it's a question that comes up very, very naturally in the text for this week. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 6. We're cruising right along in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark 6, 1 through 29, I believe it is. It's kind of a long passage, and it's going to feel kind of meandering. Just going to let you know that right off the bat. But what we want to look at is, is there anything that Jesus' power cannot do? And I'm going to suggest, and we're going to explore the fact that, that Jesus' power cannot redeem unbelief. Jesus' power cannot redeem unbelief. That is, the uh, uh, disbelief, the opposite of belief, willful unbelief. And we want to see how that works, and we want to see uh, what kind of the symptoms are of unbelief and the ways that we can be unbelieving. So, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. Here's God's Word as I share it with you. Jesus left there, which was Capernaum, and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place won't welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, no, 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 he's Elijah. And still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. 
For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she wasn't able to do so because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you, he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John disciples, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word to us today. Let's pray. Lord, we are sometimes bewildered by the things that we find in your word. They seem so strange to us that we wonder how they can have any relationship to you whatsoever. And yet, you don't let any part of your word come back empty come back void. And so, we ask that you would show us what you have for us in these words, that you would build us up as your people as a result of it, and that our faith would be increased in you, and our trust would be deepened. Lord, strengthen my words during this time, for, for mine are empty, just a, just a vapor in the wind. But you, O oh God, you hold the very words of eternal life. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So I'm suggesting that there is one thing that Jesus' power cannot do, and that is redeem unbelief. And we're going to take a look at that through the people of Nazareth, which is Jesus' hometown. We're going to take a look at that through Herod, who was uh, Herod Antipas, the, the ruler of Galilee at that time. Um, and then we're going to take a look at that as well through the disciples. The disciples are going to provide a bit of an antidote, a bit of a, of a, a, a corrective to these two stories that are on either side of them. So as we take a look at the town of Nazareth and the people of Nazareth, Jesus is going back to his hometown. And if there is something that the hometown church loves to have happen, they love to have the hometown, uh, the hometown person preach. I know this very personally from going back to Newcastle over the years, although I don't get back there very often now. Uh, but the home, Home religious communities love to have one who has gone out and made a name for themselves come back and preach. And they decide to have Jesus preach on this given Sabbath in the synagogue. And they, like 
all of the other people that Je- around whom Jesus has preached, they are amazed at his teachings. But there is something about being in your hometown. Uh, I remember very distinctly when I was teaching in uh, North Carolina. I was talking to my faculty mentor, and we were talking about just kind of the, the nature of education in our area. We taught in a very, very poor area of North Carolina. It was one where cyclical poverty was a, was a great issue. It was one where people used to be able to get a good job in the factory right out of high school, and that would carry them the rest of their lives. But the factories had closed. The economy was greatly depressed. Our county actually had the highest violent crime rate in North Carolina. We beat out Charlotte. We beat out Raleigh-Durham. We, and and we, had, we were backwoods. And I was talking to uh, my faculty mentor about education and the difficulties of teaching. And one of the difficulties of teaching in an area like that is because it was so provincial, it was so towny, that there was this sense that you don't get an education above your station. You, you, don't, you don't better yourselves. Because when you do that, you start th- people start thinking, well, they think that they're better than we are. Go and get a college degree and people are saying, oh, you just think you're better than, than I am. Same was true actually when I went to seminary. One of the professors at Gordon-Conwell was actually from Newcastle. And of course, we got to connect over that because how often do you meet someone from Newcastle in the Boston, Massachusetts area? Not very often. But he had gone and he had gotten his doctorate at, uh, at Oxford. And so when he went home, his family members let him know about it. They reminded him where he came from. And here what we have are Jesus' family members and his hometown people who were so excited to have him come and preach in their synagogue, listen to him preaching and saying, wait a minute, it's okay to preach, but you're not supposed to preach like this. You're, you're supposed to be good, but you're not supposed to be too good. Who, don't you remember when he was the, he's the carpenter, right? He's... He's, he's Mary's son. I remember when he was this high. Who does he think he is preaching these things? And what started out as pride in the hometown hero turns into resentment and anger and frustration because, because they know him, but they know him from years ago. They know him as a little boy, and they don't know him as who he has become. Some of us who have siblings kind of know this. I think I've mentioned this before, but, but if you are a sibling, is especially a younger sibling, you probably feel the pressure of this. Any younger siblings in here? Yeah, I'm, I, 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 I like the way you put that up, Nancy. Yes, I... Mm-hmm. There is something when our older siblings leave the house, the, the memory of us kind of gets locked in at that age. Is that just me? No, no, no. I see the other uh, younger siblings going, no. 
No matter how old we get, no matter what we do, the, the siblings, the older siblings always remember us. Well, you're just that six-year-old kid when I left the house. And the people in Jesus' hometown have locked him in at that kid who he was when he left his hometown. You're the little punk who stayed at the temple and then basically blamed your parents. We know who you are. They knew his siblings. You know, they comment about, you know, isn't this... uh, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon aren't his sisters here. They know the family. And they are upset at who Jesus has become and the way that he is preaching. They can't wrap their minds around who he is now. Now, who does this apply to? And, and why is this such an important teaching right here? right in the middle of, uh, of the church. I mean, we, we, none of us know Jesus when he was growing up. None of us are that old. So why do we need to pay attention to this? Well, even though we weren't with him, some of us did grow up with Jesus, didn't we? We did grow up with Jesus. We grew up with Jesus in Sunday school class, didn't we? Some of us grew up with flannel graph Jesus, didn't we? Some of us grew up with the stories. We remember our Sunday school teachers. We remember the Sunday school songs. We remember the, 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 not just Jesus on the flannel graph, but the, the lambs and the, the shepherd's crook. And, and we grew up in the church and we grew up with Jesus. We were, talking, uh, we were talking in the Sunday school class about the fact that, that art in churches, and unless you're in Europe where it kind of is functional and, and teaches things, art in American churches very particularly curates a certain image of Jesus. My last church, now granted it was Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church, but had a giant tile mosaic of Jesus with a shepherd's crook and a lamb right next to him. We like that picture of him. And when he starts to, to act and to speak in ways that challenge us, we don't like that picture of Jesus quite so much. For those of us who grew up in the church, and I am one of them, we are the family that is in danger of not seeing who Jesus has become. We have had stories of Jesus. We like the stories of Jesus, meek and mild. We have heard stories of Jesus and we have curated and we have forgotten some of the stories where he is challenging, some of the stories where he is downright offensive, some of the stories where he he gets right at the heart of our sinfulness because those hurt. And we like reducing it down to, well, Jesus, he, he would just love that's, that's what it is. But we forget the content of that love. And so we are the people as the church who are most likely to be like the people of Nazareth. 
When Jesus says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals but not an extra shirt. When he says to rely, when he says it's going to be difficult, when he says like, like he does to his, his 12 in a couple times in Mark that I am going to be crucified and don't expect anything better than that for yourselves, We are the family members like Peter that say, oh no, Lord, that's not the way this goes. The kingdom just expands and there are people and we're all happy and there's no problem. Except that's not what he promised. He promised in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We are the, the people for whom the people of Nazareth should make us nervous. And we have to ask, is Jesus a story? Is he a flannel graph character? Is is he a Sunday school answer? We can joke about that. Or is he the king of kings? Is he the great I am? Is he the redeemer and the lover of our souls? Because that that changes the picture and it changes our position in relation to who Jesus is. Have, Have we gotten too familiar with Jesus to see who he became? There's another way that this can go. And, and that's illustrated in the, in the story of King Herod. And it was fun because not, uh, not a few people said to me this week, I want to see where you go with this one. Because here we have the story of King Herod. But King Herod, um, King Herod shows us also how that we can have some unbelief about Jesus. And that's because Herod never actually spends time with Jesus. If you notice from the story, right at the beginning, it says that Herod heard about Jesus. And that immediately triggers in Herod's head some memories, some things that are on his conscience, some things that that he has had to, to think about over time. That is, namely, his execution of John the Baptist, someone he really liked and he really respected but also someone at the time of of critical need, Herod had no backbone because he was more concerned about about saving face in front of his guests than he was about the life of John the Baptist. But Herod hears about Jesus because his popularity is growing, but he has no firsthand knowledge of Jesus either. All of his knowledge of Jesus is, is hearsay. He knows enough to, to kind of connect some things in his life, but he doesn't know enough to correct those images as well. He knew John and he knew what he did to John. But here's the thing. When we hear about Jesus, when, when we get enough information about Jesus, it's kind of like when you go in and you get your flu, your flu shot. You get just enough of it to trigger an immune response, but not really enough of it for it to, to really do anything to you. Herod got inoculated from Jesus. He got enough 
Jesus in him to just be inoculated, but not enough to know his power, not enough to to know his authority, not enough to know the transformation that comes from being in relationship with him. It was enough to reject him as something he wasn't. It's almost like an allergy when your system picks up something that should be friendly and treats it as an illness. Herod was close enough to know, but not close enough to be transformed. So who's in danger of Herod's problem? Who's in danger of, of, the problem, of, of knowing enough, but, but not enough to be transformed. We have a phrase that uh, is unfortunate, cultural Christians. And cultural uh, Christianity. It's Christianity that is kind of like Herod gets. It's, it's enough, it's there in the system. We, we, we've had enough of it in order to know kind of what it's about and kind of to make some arguments about it and enough to reject it, but not enough for it to really make a difference in our lives. And as a result, the, because of Christianity's place within the world for so long, many people know about Jesus, although we're getting to a time uh, and a place actually that that some people have never heard of Jesus again. But we are getting to a place where people know enough about Jesus, but they don't know what He really is and don't care to obey Him. He is closer to a story than to a Savior. He is closer to a character than to a Creator. Herod had no interaction with Jesus, and that's part of the problem. So, so what's this antidote? And, and what did the disciples teach us about the problems of the people of Nazareth and Herod's problem and how it can be fixed? Well, the, the people of Nazareth knew Jesus. They had some knowledge of him, but, but it wasn't enough to allow them to see who he was. They needed to to be able to walk with him, and they needed to be able to call him master. But because of their history, because of of who they were, they weren't able to see past what they thought about him. Like I said, like the the older siblings that are just, it doesn't matter how much you achieve in your life, it doesn't matter the degrees, it doesn't matter if you're the world's greatest heart surgeon and have saved countless people. To you, you're, to them, you're still just the six-year-old. And they can't see through that. The disciples, on the other hand, see that there is something about Jesus. They don't have the full picture yet. Mark's going Mark's to show that over and over again in his gospel. They don't have the full picture. But they can see enough to understand that he is something more than just a human being. The people of Nazareth were close enough and they couldn't see the divinity of Jesus. They couldn't see that there was something more. And Herod, Herod saw enough of him but could never obey him because he was just a report. 
he might have been a, a, a figment of his imagination, a, a ghost of something he had done in the past. The antidote is really the twelve. They are close enough to Jesus to actually know him and to respect him and to love him and to take orders from him. And that's the second part. They obey him. Neither Herod nor the people of Nazareth would want to obey him, would want to know him as a master. Herod had his own court. He had his own authority. He was worried about keeping his own power. The people of Nazareth were concerned about keeping their own ideas, their own image, their own understanding of Jesus. But when we look at the disciples, we see people who are willing to see Jesus on his terms and obey him. We can see Jesus and not obey him. I've said this a, a number of times. But we can see Jesus and not obey him, and that misses who he is. Jesus is called to be our Lord. He is called to be our master. And if we don't acknowledge that, we are not acknowledging who he is. Gets into what C.S. Lewis once said about Jesus, the fact that, that uh, he is either who he says he is or he is a madman or worse. Because if Jesus came and said the things that he said and did the things that he did, we would not be on the fence, and, or not on the fence, but we would not be saying, you know what, he's a nice guy. Remembering back into the 1990s, there was a standoff in Waco, Texas. I don't think anyone said, you know, those are pretty nice people. Sure, their religious side, but you know what? They're nice people. There were definitive opinions. When we try to make Jesus a nice guy, we, uh, we deny who he is. And we don't allow his power to work within us. We don't allow his authority to be over us. We don't allow who he is to transform our lives. We can't have a divided allegiance. You know, it's funny because, wrap up here with some uh, final thought, you know, there are some theological positions that I wish I didn't have to hold. There are some, some positions of faith that I wish I didn't have to hold, but time and time again, when I come to Jesus and when I come to the Scripture and see the teaching of Scripture, it is clear and I have to, I have to submit no matter what my personal feelings are. I can't fit Jesus to my feelings and then call Him Lord. I can't fit Jesus to my feelings and, and call Him Master. Because I know in my life that I'm trying to master Jesus rather than the other way around. And it's difficult in our day and age to hold some of the theological positions about Jesus and about the church. But what makes me hold them? My faith. My faith in Jesus. 
Because at the end of the day, we have to make the decision, are we going to take a life of pain that includes the power of Jesus, or are we going to take a life of comfort, but none of Jesus' power and transformation? It's a hard decision, and one that we have to count the cost before we embark on. But Jesus' power cannot work when we are in unbelief. We cannot have our way and Jesus' power too. We can't have this world and Jesus' power too. But we are promised so much more, and our, life, our lives are promised so much more fulfillment now and in eternity through the hope and through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us to yourself. You have stated over and over again that you desire to have a relationship with us. You desire to be with us. You desire to be connected with us. But you have also said that you would not force yourself onto us. And so you've left us with a choice to, to willingly come and love you and all that you are and all that means for our life now and all that it will mean where you've said we can love this world. Help us not to be distracted by the, the lesser loves of this world. Show us that your love is the greatest that there is. And in faith, show us that you can work your transforming power within our lives. Help us as we, as we struggle with that this week. Lord, you have shown yourself over and over again to be faithful in the struggle. And so we trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.